As the sun slips beyond the horizon tonight, each of us will be given another opportunity to take our minds beyond the immediate and relentless demands of the day and turn our hearts toward God in a much bigger picture. These are moments for those silent prayers we don't dare speak aloud, for the hopeful longings of a wearied soul, for the desperate promises to hang on another day. Within the cold and hollow heartaches of mortality, an ever-present, all-knowing God reaches out, extending an indescribable peace that is just enough to push us forward. And at the end of it all, we are left to stand as witnesses of a plan that defies our limited view. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I like to keep a grateful heart by always remembering that I'm not alone. I have a Heavenly Father who loves me and has blessed me with so many things, so there's so many things to be grateful for. It's so amazing to know that God recognizes that I have needs and I have dreams that I want to fulfill and that He did that for me. Welcome everyone and thank you for being here. Today's discussion topics come from our studies in Genesis chapters 18 through 23. And the first topic we're going to discuss is the Lord fulfills His promises in His own time. And the second topic, which comes from the Come Follow Me resource, is Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is a similitude of God and His Son. And to help us with our discussion, we want to welcome back James Goldberg, our scholar. Welcome, James. Always good to be here, Ben. James is an author and historian, and seated next to James is Deidre Green. Welcome, Deidre. Thank you. Good to be here. And Deidre is a religious scholar and author of the book, Jacob, A Brief Theological Introduction. We're excited to get to know you more and your insights on this topic. Well, first, uh, let's get into just from this past week's study of chapters 18 through 23, initial thoughts. Well, I love these chapters. I've thought about these chapters uh, of Genesis way too much uh, in the last 20 years, but I think there's lots of great applications for our lives that we can really be inspired by. Yeah, and I think a lot of times in life we live in contradiction, and this is another one of those examples where we see people uh, trying to navigate two things that, that don't appear to match together at first. Okay. Well, let's get an overview of what we're going to be talking about. James, you mind going over these chapters and what's the context that yeah, we're going to be studying today? Absolutely. So, so last week we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, mm -hmm. that Abraham and Sarah are promised these descendants like the stars in the sky, the sand of the sea. And, and we've actually got a verse in Genesis chapter 17 uh, where God, God reiterates that promise specifically to Sarah and says in verse 16, and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Sometimes when we read through the scriptures, it's so quick, we forget those are decades in chapters at times. Mm. Abraham and Sarah have been married for years and years, and she's never been able to have a child. Um, so one of the, the tensions we'll be dealing with today is believing in a promise that for years and years and years just doesn't come. You know, and that's a great introduction to this first topic, which is the Lord fulfills his promises in his own time. You mentioned that, you know, Sarah, she's older, how old are we talking and how does that really, you know, um, uh, fit in with this first topic? Yeah. 
So the scriptural accounts have them by the time a child comes, they're in their, their 90s. Maybe the more significant detail um, for us to relate to is in chapter 18, verse 11. And it says, now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. That phrase, it ceased to be with her after the manner of women is referring to? Not being able to have children. She's not fertile anymore. Right. You know, if you imagine them having waited all these years for this promise, there's like a biological clock that's, that's done, right? <laughs> this is at the, the moment where it seems like we misunderstood our lives and, and this is not a possibility anymore. Yeah. It's very clear that even in this context where it just seems like it's too late, this promise is being reiterated and God wants Sarah to know directly that this promise is to her. And what's her response? Like how does, because we know there's, we get a little bit of insight to how she feels about this. Can you uh, kind of share with us how she reacts and what does that tell her about what she knows about God or maybe what she doesn't know about God? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of actually ambiguity from the Hebrew, right? So the same verb uh, for both laughing and rejoicing is used. And sometimes there seems to be a sort of play on words. Isaac's name will actually mean he who laughs. Um, so it seems that she both rejoices and seems to think it's pretty absurd. You know, simultaneously, it seems like the right word choice. And I think that that's significant for us to think about too, that God can do something wonderful and amazing, but also something that's incredible in the sense that it just seems beyond belief as well. I'd like to uh, throw out to the audience and see, are there other examples that show us this idea of waiting on the Lord? In my patriarchal blessing, it says that I will fulfill the role of motherhood to perfection. I've never been able to have children. I am ceasing and past the time of being able to have children. But I still wait. I know that the Lord has promised that I will have children, whether in this life or the next, that promise will be fulfilled. Teresa, what gives you the strength to continue to wait on the Lord? Sarah's promise, actually, and, and Rachel and others that waited and waited and, and hurt and wanted, that calmness of spirit that the Lord gives when He says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So tell me more about this, this calmness of spirit. What, what is that like for you? I, ha I think I had to get to a point because of all the anger and frustration that I had that I was willing to actually give it to the Lord. And basically told him, I, I can't take this pain anymore. It's messing with my life. I'm not fulfilling other things that I need to do because I'm so hurt and angry. So if you will take that from me, I will give it to you. And he took it, and that pain was gone. And, and I had peace. You know, I'm reminded as, as you're talking about this idea of handing something over to the Lord, um, I spent about a year in chemotherapy at one point. It's not my favorite year of my life. But there were some real blessings there. And I remember uh, I'd talk with the chaplain. And he said something that's really stuck with me where he said, sometimes when, when we want something, we just hold on tight to a certain hope, right? And it's not until we're ready to let go and hand things over and be vulnerable to the, 
the unexpected and the pain and what, whatever the Lord will give us, that we're open to his grace. So Deidre, I want your opinion on this. Was it necessary for Sarah to, to go through this waiting process before she was able to have a child? It seems like with all the matriarchs and patriarchs in Genesis, they are bearing really important children, right? Their children will uh, pave the way for Christ to uh, come onto the earth. And so it really matters that they're sort of prepared for mm. these very special children. And one thing that religion scholars have really pointed out about all the matriarchs that we see in Genesis is that the scriptures make very clear that God determines uh, when they will have children. And I think that's part of what we're meant to see here in Genesis 18, where it specifies that she is no longer fertile. She's no longer bio biologically capable of reproducing, that it's God's way of highlighting for them and for us as readers that God's in charge of this line. It's during those years when they're waiting uh, that Ishmael is born. So Hagar uh, is a woman from Egypt She's a servant in the household. And in the culture of the time, right, if, if you're a servant in the household, if she has a child, that's counted as part of Sarah's household family in some ways. Okay. And so Sarah's thought is um, that, that Abraham and, and Hagar should, should have a child, uh, which they then do, and his name is Ishmael. But then there's some tension. Really? Why? Why would that cause? <laughs> why would that cause tension in a in a household? As Hagar is is wondering what is going to happen with her and her child, waiting on the Lord's promises in the Lord's time, we have two different accounts of her encounters with God, and the first is in Genesis chapter sixteen, um, verses ten to thirteen or so. And to read them? yeah, okay. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? And this is an incredibly significant verse, not just because of the really beautiful and reassuring promises that are given to Hagar and Ishmael in this time when Hagar's literally in the wilderness, you know, literally terrified of whether she'll even be able to survive. Uh, but then she, she gives God a name, right? She calls God the one who sees me. And this is incredibly significant. A woman who is a servant woman, a slave woman, um, you know, certainly not a, a first wife or even having the status of wife, um, to be able to have this clear vision, right? This really intimate experience with God um, and feeling seen by God, I think is really profound and something that we can all identify with, you know, feeling marginalized in some way, feeling unseen by God at some point, but then having these profound promises. Mari. Well, first of all, we have a big family. <laughs> okay, how big are we talking? Um, well, there's seven, seven of us, seven yeah. kids. Okay. But this is particular experience, well, it does feel kind of immature compared to what, I've, um, what else has been discussed. But um, when we first moved here, when I was eight or nine, we found out about this choir that um, is all children and they do music videos and it was just a really cool experience and we got the opportunity to audition. Um, and 
uh, this one got in. <laughs> and I did not. As a nine-year-old, that was really hard. So for the next, like, four or five years, it was just a continual process of auditioning and not getting in, auditioning and not getting in. And in between, I was watching her go through all these cool experiences, like, go to Japan, go to New York, and it was just really cool. And there was a lot of jealousy that came from that. And I remember praying to God as just a little nine-year-old, like, why can't I get into this choir? This looks so cool. This is an experience that I really, really want. And the answer that came to me, I did not like. It, um, I just got this answer that it's, yeah, like, yeah, it's a good experience, but it's not for you. You're wow. going to get something different. And I did not listen to that. <laughs> so it was just auditioning and not getting in. But one year, I actually did finally get in when I think I was 15. I remember one specific experience standing on stage and singing and just having this moment where I was like, yeah, Heavenly Father, you were right. This is not for me. <laughs> it's really hard um, in a big family and as the younger sister to her, and she's amazing and I love her so much, um, to feel like you're seen and you're a person. And it was just a moment where God saw me and he sees me all the time and I am his daughter. And it was just, it was so amazing. I really love the way in your story that God seeing you prepared you to see something uh, that wasn't, you You weren't ready to see it at first, right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, we'd mentioned that there are these two passages with Hagar. The second is in Genesis 21. Um, so she's then, after Ishmael's born and is a boy, that they're out in the wilderness again, and she's worried uh, that, that they're going to die. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, what, what aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not. For God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then in verse 19 uh, of chapter 21, this moment that you reminded me of, and God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad to drink. I think there are those moments in life where the water is there, we're not ready to see it at first. And it's in the Lord's time and with his inspiration that then, that then our eyes are open and we're able to say what, what we need from the God who knows us. You know, and Mari, what has that experience done for you moving forward? How has that relationship with our Heavenly Father since then? Ever since that experience, I feel so much more connected and not only to my Heavenly Father, but also to my family. Because through that experience, I had a lot of jealousy towards my sister. There was, when we were little, it was just a lot of jealousy. And that experience has helped me let go and to just see, not only to know that God sees me, but to see others as well. Great insights. Uh, you know, what a wonderful way to connect a real life experience to something, you know, thousands of years ago that may seem insignificant or irrelevant to today's world, but what a perfect example. I can say that in my own life, I feel like a lesson the Lord has taught me again and again is that His plan for my life and His vision for my life is much greater um, than I could have ever imagined. Going back to uh, James's, you know, sort of gesture of opening the hand. Um, and I think it's obvious from, from the matriarchs and patriarchs that we read about in Genesis that there's a reason that they had to go through so much development, so much trial before they were able to receive their promises. And I think that's true for all of us. I wonder whether these, these in-between years and dealing with that conflict teaches them something, right? 
Um, well, absolutely. I mean, it's clear from the language in Genesis 22, where we read about the binding of Isaac, that this trial of faith was absolutely necessary for the covenant to be fulfilled, right? God reiterates the promise after this incident and says that it's because of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice that he will fulfill this covenant. You can't go from, you know, walking around the desert and going about your everyday life to being willing to sacrifice your son on a top of a mountain you've never been on, right? The, these trials and other experiences that they're going through are preparing them to develop the kind of faith and trust in God um, that will allow them to fulfill the covenant made with them. How has your study of these chapters kind of helped you on a personal level dealing with everyday life? Yeah, I mean, I think part of being human and certainly part of being Latter-day Saint is we are very keyed into um, thinking about the difficulty of life, the trials of life, um, and certainly thinking about sacrifice. And I think that all of those things are important and they've been an important part of our religious history. They factor into all of our lives. Um, but I think it's sometimes a harder lesson uh, to realize that God actually wants us to receive um, promises, that God wants to fulfill promises. And so we, there is that uh, necessary part of going through difficult trials and going through suffering and being willing to sacrifice. Um, and that's something that we need to honor. But we also need to recognize that God is also trying to give us our own land of promise and give us this joyful life that we can receive in the here and now. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your comments on how the Lord fulfills His promises in His own time. Well, trials aren't something I wish for, but I sure am grateful for the opportunity I have to grow because of the trials that I have. As uh, I face a trial, I will look for answers in prayer. And, uh, and at, at times, what I'll receive is comfort. At other times, I'll receive guidance as how, how to approach or deal with you know, whatever it is that's challenging me at the time. I don't think that there's anything that's too hard for the Lord. I think He knows each one of us individually, and He's always there to help us out and ready to help us out when we need it. When I go through trials, it always ends up building my testimony, making it 10 times stronger because I just think, okay, I went through that hard thing, which means I can do hard things. And I just, I'm always ready for the next challenge that comes my way. So now for a second topic, uh, which is Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is a similitude of God and his son. Now we're gonna look at this uh, from three different angles. Uh, first, Abraham, his point of view, and then Isaac's point of view, and then Sarah's point of view. So let's go ahead and start off with Abraham. Yeah, I think thinking of all three, they've waited so long for this promise, and there's Isaac, this son who, who will laugh, who will rejoice, that's his name, right? And then out of nowhere, you have at the beginning of chapter two, this command to sacrifice his son. So in, in Genesis 22, uh, chap verses one through two, it says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, tempt or try Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a, for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. 
So, so there's this surprising command. Yeah, it seems that uh, from the Genesis text, there's a lot of heaviness, right? There's a, there's a very methodical, clear, drawn out way that, that Abraham goes about this. But certainly from the book of Abraham, this adds an important layer that Abraham had had his own traumatic experience uh, nearly being sacrificed, right? And then to be asked to uh, put his own son through something like that. Um, I mean, it, it goes really deep when we think about it from that perspective. Part of it is a blink and you'll miss it moment in chapter 22 that tells us the way Abraham is approaching this commandment is, is not the same as his father. Yeah, so in verse 5 of chapter 22, um, so Abraham and Isaac have been journeying with uh, what are referred to as Abraham's young men or servant men that have um, gone with them. And in verse 5, it says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Um, we can really miss this, especially in the English, but in the Hebrew, uh, the term used there is vana shuva, right? We will return to you. So even before Abraham and Isaac ascend Mount Moriah and go to perform this sacrifice, Abraham already makes clear uh, that he believes that he and Isaac will be coming back together uh, to, to meet the young men, to meet the servant men, and go back home to Sarah. He says, God made a covenant with me. God made a promise to me. And in the face of this command, I'll show that I'm, that I'm willing to go and give something up. But I also trust that there's an answer. Not knowing what it is, but I trust there's an answer. Exactly. And this comes back to a point James made earlier about the sort of contradictions that we live with in our lives, right? Abraham is told to sacrifice. He's told not to sacrifice. Abraham's told that Isaac is the son through whom all these promises and covenants will be fulfilled. He's now told to sacrifice Isaac. There's all of this ambiguity, contradiction. It's really difficult to make sense of. And yet Abraham holds on to this faith and what gives coherence, right, to his narrative, to his story, is this faith that God has given Sarah and I this promise and we believe it will be fulfilled. We don't have any idea how but we believe it will be. I want to ask the audience, uh, how do you see the Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac? How do you see that as a similitude of God and his son? Al, go ahead. What I always relate when I read this is relating it to missionaries going out, fathers having their sons going out, trusting in God. They're going to be okay. And that's what it's all about, is trusting the Lord has the plan, either this life or the life after, that we can trust the Lord. And that's where I feel Abraham was looking, okay, if I lose him, all the other promises don't matter. What's going to happen to my son? He's going where the Lord wants him. So Al, have you sent us a missionary out? Yes. And tell me, what was that experience like for you? That's the way I felt. I trusted that the Lord would take care of him. And that's what I did. Just here, what you want to do? Thank you, Al. Uh, let's go to another comment. Dave. The greatest fear every parent has is something's going to happen to their child. And uh, so I have one in the military. Lots of fears and worries as a parent. But the one thing that we've known is that we've got promises 
that have been made. My wife and I have been sealed in the temple, and we each have patriarchal blessings, and there are promises there that relate to us and our family and our posterity that will come. I don't know how it works, but I know that the promises that the Lord has made will come to fruition. How do you know that? It comes from, I think, getting to know the Lord. As, as I began my experience in the church as a convert, I learned that I could read and study and pray about it to gain a spiritual witness of the truth. I could deal with a problem, a challenge, a question, figure it out in my mind, take it to the Lord, and get a response, get to know what the Lord's desire for me was with that. And as those things happen, you gain a relationship with the Lord so that when a prompting comes, you know it's from the Lord, and you know if you do your part, he'll do his part. Dave, thank you for sharing that part of your life with us. That was really neat. Really appreciate that. This is a great time, I think, to transition into the, the second aspect of this whole story, the different perspective. And we had a question from one of our viewers that's going to help us kind of springboard into uh, Isaac's perspective. Hello, my name is Alex from Springville, Utah. My question is, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, it's obvious that Abraham had a, a personal and close relationship with God. However, it's not so obvious that Isaac had such a relationship. And I think at times when life gets hard, we don't feel like Abraham, but we feel like Isaac. So my question is, how can we trust in God the same way that Isaac trusted in his father and the way that Abraham trusted in God? If we're going to liken um, the story of Abraham and Isaac to the atonement, right, really we're all Isaac. The story is meant to remind us that there is a Savior, right, that there is one sacrifice and it's not us. Um, but it also reminds us that we are reliant on, on grace because Isaac can't do anything. Isaac's at the mercy of God and at the mercy of Abraham, but he learns that it's safe to be at the mercy of God. As Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain, Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? And what Abraham says in verse 8 is, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And it says, so they went both of them together. And in fact, that's, that's what happens, right? Just as Abraham is ready and has Isaac on the altar at this sort of unthinkable moment, the angel comes and, and commands him to stop. And then there's a ram caught in the thicket. And this, I think, is where we see uh, God teaching the people about Christ's sacrifice that will come. The God of Abraham and Isaac, the God who in this moment becomes the God of Isaac, right, is the God who provides the sacrifice. We, we don't need to sacrifice children to God. God offers that sacrifice. It's almost as if God has a big plan mapped out. <laughs> interesting. I think it is interesting um, that, that there's one plan, but, but the point of view from which you receive that makes such a difference, yeah. right? Uh, that, that Abraham learns one set of things, Isaac learns a related set of things, and even Sarah at home 
you know, we don't always think of her perspective, but this is the son she waited and waited for um, for so long, her, her miracle child, and she's watched them go away and she sees them come back. And I think it's worth it for us to spend some time on, on imagining what that feels like and what that teaches us about faith. Well, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's now dive into Sarah's uh, perspective uh, from her point of view. Like you said, this is her son that she waited so long for. Now, does she fully understand what is happening? We don't know. Uh, it's not clear um, what Sarah knows and what she doesn't. But we do know that she understands what the Abrahamic covenant is and that Isaac has been promised to her and that he is the one that will continue uh, the line. In, in chapter 21, uh, just before the binding, when it talks about uh, Sarah giving birth to Isaac, in verses 1 and 2, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So here the text is really highlighting for us that Sarah is absolutely essential to this story, that, um, that the promise was made to Sarah and that God fulfilled the promise to Sarah. And so I think it's really fascinating to think about the fact that often it's our human tendency when we're suffering, when there's ambiguity, when there's a lack of clarity or contradiction, there's this impulse to do something active, right? Something akin to sacrifice. But here, thinking about Sarah's perspective, she isn't out there doing something. She isn't going up the mountain. She just waits, right? And, and waits faithfully, believing in this promise. And I think that that's really similar to what most of us experience in the trials of our lives. Even though we might have the impulse to do something or make something happen, that's not always what we're meant to do. It can be harder and an even greater act of faith to sit patiently and wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. That is the hardest for me. <laughs> I hate it. I really hate it. So when it says in Genesis chapter 22 that, that Abraham arose early to go up the mountain, right? I really imagine Sarah in that moment having a sense of what's going on, taking a deep breath, and the same way we've seen the others trusting, right? Like she's just gotta trust mm -hmm. that God's gonna take care of it. And sometimes that verse that says, be still and know that I am God, that stillness can be the most difficult and yet the most revelatory. Uh, thank you so much, what great comments. And I look forward to jumping into these chapters and talking about this a little more in footnotes. Something that really stood out to me in today's discussion actually came from an audience member and was a discussion about understanding that there are certain blessings that are for us that uh, aren't for other people and vice versa. One of the ladies that was a guest, she was saying how um, in her patriarchal blessing, you know, she was promised all these things. And um, as the older she got, it still didn't happen. There are some things we're meant to do and some things we're not meant to do. Um, and to feel God's love um, in that and to know that God has a plan for us individually is um, something that can really increase our faith. My patriarchal blessing has a lot of blessings and promises in that. And um, a lot of the things I've seen um, come true, like that's, it's happening. And I'm so grateful for that. And 
Um, I have to realize that even if some of this stuff doesn't happen in this lifetime, I can be okay with that too. And through her testimony, I felt the spirit because it gave me the peace of mind knowing that whatever happens, it's in the Lord's plan and in His time, and it'll be okay. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. Uh, I'm excited. There's a lot of really cool themes um, within these chapters, uh, Genesis 18 to 23. And one of those themes that we were talking about earlier was uh, this idea of Abraham heeding the word of the Lord. Of course, we're going to get to the Sodom and Gomorrah, but let's start with this at the beginning of chapter 18 with this experience Abraham has. And I'll let you take over, James, and kind of teach yeah. us a little bit. We talked mostly about the main story mm-hmm. of, of his family and, and Isaac, but there's this sub-story in the same chapters about, about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what it was that allowed Abraham to hear about that in the first place. Um, The first eight verses of chapter 18 of Genesis are dedicated to Abraham seeing these three strangers outside his tent and taking them in. So I'm going to start at verse two and it says, and he lift up his eyes and looked and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if I now have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts after that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And then it, it makes sure to show that Sarah is also involved in this hospitality. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So we've got this whole feast scene from strangers. And to me, that's, that's really significant in terms of what Genesis is telling us about the kind of person Abraham is and the kind of person we should be, right? Jesus is going to say in the New Testament to people who say, when saw we thee a stranger? Well, anytime, anytime you saw a stranger, Treat them like it's me. In this context, is there a different meaning to the word stranger? Yeah, usually in the Bible, when you'll, when you'll see that word stranger, it means a foreigner. Okay. Somebody from a different country who's passing through. And according to like the, the custom of God's law, you have a duty to someone who's a foreigner because they're in this position of vulnerability. Right. And of course, uh, later on, um, in the Old Testament, the analogy will be direct with the children of Israel, right? That they're supposed to identify with the stranger and the foreigner because they've been sojourners, they've been foreigners. And so it's this idea that develops that you're not only supposed to care for others' vulnerability, but recognize your own vulnerability uh, in the process. And I think that's a lot of what we see with the story of Abraham and Sarah, that they are constantly reminded of their complete dependence on God. This is its own kind of test, right? And Abraham and Sarah pass the test. And then I love what it says in verse 17, where after Abraham 
has received and really gone the extra mile, right? Like a whole feast. He wasn't doing the minimum for these guys. It says, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? In other words, he, he recognizes that the kind of person who will treat a, a vulnerable foreigner this way is the kind of person God can almost not help but give revelation to someone like Abraham. So if somebody wants to increase that, um, their ability to receive revelation, one way is to look at how we treat others around us. And I think Latter-day Saints speaking as a whole can be pretty good at this, mm -hmm. right? Um, when I was 12, my family, all our stuff got stolen, right? And the ward took us in mm. and fed us and clothed us. And, and it was so reflexive. It's like they weren't even thinking about it and making the choice. How do we want to treat these people? Do they deserve it? That was the reflex. Uh, when we've had a sort of global wave of more people being displaced and being refugees, we've seen the church respond in tremendous ways. And when I say the church, I mean everyday members of the church. I'm always hearing stories from people different places of what they've done to help refugees. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it really comes back to recognizing our shared vulnerability. And from a theological perspective, again, it's about recognizing our utter and complete dependence on God. And that's something that we share with every human being. And as soon as we start to think that you know, our financial status or our social status somehow removes us from that complete dependence, that's where we start to go wrong. When the prophet Samuel goes to, to choose another king after Saul, uh, he's going through Jesse's sons and, and goes, oh, it's gotta be that one, right? He looks great, gotta be that one. And the Lord finally says to him, Samuel, stop looking so hard at the outside. Right? I don't see like men see. Men look on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. But if we're the kind of people who act like Abraham and Sarah, then the Lord can give us the inspiration to see like Abraham and Sarah. You know, I love that. And I think that's key when we talk about this story. And I love how it just shows like he ran, he's willing, he wants to serve, he wants to help. And he goes the extra mile. This is not just a, uh, hey, can I get you guys a glass of water? It's like, no, we're going to roll out the red carpet. You know, in Polynesian culture, they're very big on being hospitable. I remember my mom, who is not Polynesian, she learned very early that when she went to visit the home of another Polynesian, she had to be so careful at complimenting something they had. Because if she said, that's a beautiful painting, they would take it off the wall and they would give it to her, you know? And so, and it, it, and it shows how within that culture, they're, they pride themselves on their faith in, in Jesus Christ and, and following him. And so much of that is reflected in the way that they treat and are hospitable towards others. I think it's always important to be engaged in communities on the ground and be engaged in various communities that look different from us. Um, for most of the time I've lived in Utah, I've served um, in a congregation uh, that's Swahili speaking. Um, so primarily all people who have come um, from different countries in Africa. Um, and, you know, the kinds of conversations and the kinds of 
things I talk about as a Sunday school teacher to teenagers uh, who have come from often really horrific experiences, um, having lived through genocide or having been refugees and lived in refugee camps um, on their way to the United States. We have really different conversations when we're talking about the Book of Mormon. Um, and I think that it's always important to think about how the principles that we claim to believe in apply in all different contexts. Sometimes we say ch children aren't prejudiced, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they live in a culture just like we do. They pick it up. And so if you're not having some kind of conversation from a very early age, helping them see things another way, then you're letting the world win, you know? And, and so I think, yeah, one thing that's been very important to me is, is finding the opportunities to have those conversations with my kids, teach them different stories, help them understand the way people sometimes get treated very differently um, so that they can have some, some empathy for that and step in. And how does that, um, how have they responded to that? Have you seen a difference in the way they treat others, even at a young age? Absolutely. Um, one thing with my oldest daughter that I've been just so impressed with, seeing her bring friends home where other people in the friend group struggled to get along with them, but she was able to just let them be. And I don't know how much I can take credit for my daughter and how much <laughs> that's just her heart. Um, what other insights do we have from this experience? I think that when we're open to God in terms of what he's gonna expect from us, we're also open to some unexpected blessings. Absolutely. Okay. And that's the case with Abraham here, right? That, that he's ready um, to take in these strangers and then it comes around and blesses him and his family because the warning he gets is, is not just about anything, it's about this city, Sodom, where his nephew, Lot, lives. Um, and, so, and so it means a lot to Abraham that he was able did, to did help strangers and get help. <laughs> Did you just give us a pun? Did I just give that us a pun? That means a lot. <laughs> James, I'm so impressed. That was really good. Look at you. Oh, <laughs> my kids are going to be groaning. So the same three messengers who came and tested Abraham and Sarah and received hospitality go to the city of Sodom. And we can see that as a similar test. And Lot passes in the same way. He invites them and actually really presses them to come into his house and get off the street because he knows the city as a whole is not gonna pass this test. I think that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah can point us to the fact that uh, sin, sin is communal and social. And so that's part of the problem of trying to identify a number of people who aren't touched by this sin. Um, it needs to be completely uh, rooted out by the gospel, but that's a social effort, um, not just an individual one. Yeah, I think I relate to that on a personal level because there are certain problems that come with being in my society today and I feel them, right? And I don't know if I can say, oh, that's all out in the world. None of it's in me too. Yeah. And so with, if I didn't have a community of people where we were trying to work together to identify stuff and put some separation, it'd be easy. Sin has a gravity to it and it kind of pulls us in. And the more that becomes the center of a society, the, the stronger that gravity is. So is this a good time to get into what, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, I think that's a very important question to discuss 
because I think there's a really significant misunderstanding about that. Okay. So the misunderstanding is rooted in Genesis chapter 19, verse 5. So we said these three men came, they were accepted as guests into Lot's house. And then in verse 5, it says, uh, well, verse 4 says, tons of, of men from Sodom come around. There's a whole crowd, um, old and young, all the people from every quarter. And then in verse 5, it says, and they called unto Lot and said unto him, where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And know in biblical terms, that's often a euphemism, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we're talking about, in, in this case, relation. rape, okay. right? Oh, okay, right. So, so they're interested in bringing them out and raping them. Okay. So there's, historically then, some people have associated Sodom and Gomorrah with homosexuality. I think there's two big problems with that. Okay. The first one is that, that rape and sexual orientation don't have much in common, right? Rape is very much about power and control. So it doesn't depend on sexual orientation. This is a, a domination. They're going to show these people for, for thinking they can just wander through their city. And it's a, it's a form of cultural domination, right? It's a weapon of right. war. And that's part of what could be at play here is it's a sort of uh, ethnic domination. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with orientation. Yep. It's about humiliation and, and yep. power. And we see this all the time today, right? In, in places where order breaks down and there's war, there's a lot of sexual violence designed to humiliate. The second problem that's an even bigger problem with it is that I think people have been tempted uh, to associate Sodom and Gomorrah exclusively with homosexuality because for so many people that feels like, oh, that's not me. That's somebody else's problem. So a city was destroyed, that seems serious, I'm off the hook, which is the exact opposite of what the prophets in the Old Testament tell us about how we should interpret that. Uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah all address this. And actually, Ezekiel makes a point of calling uh, Sodom the sister of Jerusalem. So here in chapter 16, verses 48 to 49, uh, it says, as I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. So actually we, the covenant people, sometimes were as bad or even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 49, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So that's the, so are you saying that's the real sin? I mean, that's what Ezekiel says, yeah. right? And yeah, and that fits perfectly with the contrast that's being set up in Genesis 18, right? Why Abraham and Sarah are something unique, right? As we're coming into this story, because they show a sort of hospitality. Um, that Sodom and Gomorrah was guilty of not showing. Yeah, and it's the same core insight that's going to come up again and again in the, in the scriptures. It, Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, you'll be brought low, right? That sin is the one we need to be watching out for. It's a sin that's a potential within each of us. 
this comes up, of course, again and again in the Book of Mormon, right? That this idea of exalting oneself over others is what leads to ultimately the destruction of the Nephites and what they're warned against. Jacob says specifically, you know, that you're to think of your brethren like unto yourselves. Uh, and then he even lifts up the Lamanites who are like the quintessential other in the Book of Mormon as the people who will give an example to the Nephites of how they should be comporting themselves in their family lives, how they should be treating their wives, how they should be treating their children, right? And I think this comparison between Jerusalem and Sodom and Gomorrah is another uh, really humbling example of that, that, that Jerusalem, right, the covenant people can't exalt themselves over the quintessential wicked city, that they're guilty of the same crimes. Yep. So uh, how does this, how does understanding this, how has that changed your perception kind of on the world and, and those uh, with whom you come in contact? I think one important way it changes my perception is when I come in contact with people, I'm not looking for who's to blame for the problems <laughs> because I know that I'm part of it, Yeah. right? And the most important sinner you will always meet is you, <laughs> right? So it really helps me to not, point fingers, but to look inward. Um, that sort of Lord is it I moment. I think that's the attitude when you get, when you realize that, that we, we are always a potential Sodom. How about you, Deidre? Yeah, I think that it's that we can never write off anyone we encounter, that anyone we encounter can teach us how to be better Christians, better followers of Christ. The allegory of the olive tree teaches us that the, the natural trees, right, the, those that represent the covenant actually cannot survive and cannot flourish without the grafting in of the wild. Um, and so I think it's at the heart of our theology to understand that we can never write off anyone else. We are the student of every other person, even those people that we think are the sort of quintessential other um, or even the quintessential sinner. I love what Isaiah says when he references Sodom and Gomorrah, because he makes first, and this is in Isaiah chapter one, right at the beginning, but, but he talks to the children of Israel in exile, right? And says, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. So he says, just fully identify yourselves. You're Sodom and Gomorrah sometimes. But then if you, you skip forward in verse 16, he says, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It is never too late for us to turn around, recognize the ways that we have become prideful, reach out to others, and in doing so, open ourselves up for revelation and repentance. Yeah, I think it's a nice parallel, a nice contrast again with what we're supposed to glean about Abraham and Sarah from this section of readings, right? Is that Abraham's just open and willing uh, to listen to whatever God has to say to him and that it says a lot about how we are prepared uh, to receive revelation, whether we can even hear it. And, you know, there are lots of examples in the scriptures where the Lord's very explicit that sometimes 
we receive false revelation, not because God wants to give us false revelation, but because of the state of our hearts or the state of our minds and what, and what we're set upon. And there are a number of passages in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Book of Mormon that really imply that it's the state of our hearts that determines the quality of revelation that we receive, that if our hearts are too set um, on some carnal desire or something we wish for rather than willing God's will, that we can get turned around and confused. So Deidre, how do you use that in your own process of receiving and acting on revelation? I mean, I think it's tricky for all of us, but it comes down to being submissive and really being willing to give up our will. When we've kind of emptied ourselves of our own will and our own desire, can then trust the revelation that we receive uh, that might be the very thing that we want and hope for. And a lot of times I've been comforted by the story of Jonah, who went the wrong way and God brought him right back. And I think sometimes if we allow ourselves to, to be Jonah, right? And, and to be turned around, that's what is ultimately going to matter. And if you go forward doing justice and reaching out to help others, God can take you by the hand and guide you. And sometimes it'll be very clear. And sometimes revelation distills like the dew where you barely even notice it's there. You're just thinking through something and one morning there's a clarity. If our heart's in the right place, we'll get going the right direction before too long. TG, you've clearly dedicated so much of your life to, <laughs> to this and, and particularly to this, this story. Uh, what drew you uh, to wanna really explore this so much in your life? You know, the story, especially of the binding of Isaac, really puts front and center the sort of ambiguity and contradiction and paradox that we're faced with all the time in human life. Um, and I've always been struck by um, how Abraham seemed to navigate that so beautifully, right? Not, not easily, right, but beautifully. All of us in some way face something that feels like contradiction, something that feels like inexplicability in our relationship with God. And to be able to uh, be able to navigate that beautifully, right, even though with difficulty, um, I think is really profound and really inspiring. This is one of the oldest stories we have, and yet it feels so current. Mm. In, in the concerns it speaks to. I think mm -hmm. just in my lifetime, right? We've had rise of internet. We've had so many other things that change that, that for a lot of people in their individual lives have brought these, these contradictions and paradoxes to the forefront. And Abraham is, is really a model for our age of, of navigating thorny things with this, this grace and beauty. I'm excited to go back and look at some of these things because this footnotes portion really allows us to explore some of these things. So thank you so much for your uh, insights. And thank you all for uh, watching today. Um, and as always, wanna remind you and invite you that if you felt the spirit prompting you and nudging you to, to act, to do something, that you will take the courage to follow those promptings. We'll see you next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.